Thank you for joining us today for the Restoration Church podcast. This is the fourth in our remix series, and it is called Remixing Ratios. We hope you enjoy. Good job, little people. Number 13. Good morning, everybody. Whoa, there it is. Good morning. How you doing? Good to see you. Hey, um, just to let you know, when the kids are up here doing their little hand things, that's for us too, right? I mean, like, we want to do the corporate worship with our kids and give them an opportunity to learn the songs that we're singing so that um, eventually they're going to know all these songs. They don't have to have their own little time. You know, it's like they can, they're going to be in there, hands, motions, it's going to be crazy, corporate worship, it's going to be great. Welcome to Restoration Church. We're glad you guys are here. Thanks for coming today. Um, we are in a six-week series called Remix where we are looking at how the gospel remixes our lives and our understandings of how we're supposed to live in this world, who God is, who we are before God, and um, how we're supposed to be a church living on mission in the city. Uh, The first week we we learned that the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for us, gave us a new status before God, that it put us in the throne room, right? That we are now priests, right? We, We are all able to commune with God completely because of the work of Christ. We are now called children of God, sons and daughters of God. We are no longer enemies of God or far from God. We are close and near and so near that he is in us. And in us gives us a special access to him. So week two, we talked about that um, we have access to the actual throne of grace and we can come boldly to him in prayer and in worship and it should, our access to God should remix our lives in the way that we pray. Um, Last week, Lance took us through uh, understanding how the gospel remixes our relationships with people around us. How the gospel can remix our, our ability to when we are offended or when we are hurt, how we don't stop uh, at just not getting revenge, right? Or we don't just go get justice. We stop and then we bless. We go the next mile. The gospel remixes us to be second mile type of people. That it leads us to not just stop, but to stop, but not stop there and to go on and bless. And today, we're going to be looking at how the gospel remixes our understanding of the ratio in the church. And you're like, what is the ratio in the church? We're going to learn about that. So just the gospel remixes the, the ratio. So um, in our lives, I've got to be true to my brother Lance and give food illustrations, right? I mean, I've got to keep it going. So um, I like salt. Anybody like salt? Sweet. All right. Has anybody ever um, gone to a restaurant and they picked up the salt shaker and the previous restaurant um, attendee was not so kind and they loosened the top of the salt shaker? Anybody ever done that? And then you're like, oh, man, this is really good pasta. I want to add some salt. And you go like this. And you have lots of salt. And then you're like, oh, what should I do? Well, you should eat it, right? I mean, don't want to waste the salt, right? I mean, that's some really salty food. It's good stuff. No, it's not. Too much salt is a bad thing, right? When the ratio of pasta to salt is off, the pasta goes bad, right? We don't want to eat it. We don't want to be a part of that. Think about um, desserts, right? You're baking a cake. You're making some apple crisp. I don't even know what I'm talking about at this point. This is just straight-up illustrations of stupidity. Um, and you're making your, your dessert, and, you add, and the, the recipe calls for two eggs. You're like, but I like eggs. Eggs are really good, full of protein, uh, good cholesterol. It's going to make my eyes healthier. It says two eggs. I'm going to put ten eggs in it, right? It's going to be an eggy cake. It's going to be awesome, very fluffy. You whisk it up, you put, and you put it in the oven, and you serve it to your friends for their birthday cake, and they say, this is the best cake ever, 
right? No, because too much eggs is a bad thing in a cake, right? When the ratio is off, stuff goes bad. Things happen. Well, that happens in the church too, right? We, um, we have bought into this mentality that staff and pastors are supposed to do everything in the church, in our culture. Maybe you haven't individually. Maybe we as Restoration haven't, but we, we haven't a little bit, right? We kind of expect it. We kind of believe that the pastor is at the top, and they, they do the stuff they get paid for, right? They get paid to, to teach and to preach and to love people and visit people in the hospital and do all the discipleship planning and cast the visions and do, do all the ministry work, right? We, we kind of believe that. You know why I know we believe that? Because if you look around our culture, especially in the American church, each week you can see pastor after pastor, church after church, that the pastors are falling from their pulpits because of either financial, sexual, pride, some type of sin, and the churches close their doors. The people put so much investment at the top, at this one person, the head of the church, and the ratio is completely messed up, and it all falls apart. When they fall, it all falls. And I can, I can name you big names right now. Big churches, mega churches, whose pastors have fallen. And I can name you one right now that didn't fall because of sexual sin. He fell because he was just completely exhausted. His family was falling apart. Because all that weight, all that pressure, all the loneliness, all that at-the-top mentality was put on him, and he neglected his family, and then he had to come to his church a couple weeks ago and say, I'm out. I've got to resign. I've got to go take care of my family. The ratio is off, and I've got to balance things out. Today we're going to see that the gospel remixes that. It changes our perspective. But how do we get there? How do we, how do we learn? How do we, it's a learned behavior, right? It's, a, it's an expectation that we learn from, ch- from childhood and from our grandparents and our grandparents' grandparents. We learned that the pastor is supposed to do stuff, right? And that the staff are supposed to handle certain things. We learned that. We learned it from a business model we participate in. But we also learned it from church history. So we're going to have a little church history with Will, okay? I'll give you a quick background. It's going to be a quick run through all of church history up until today, and it's not going to be as detailed as some of you might want, okay? So we're, going to, we're just going to do a quick church history with Will. Is that my slide? Oh, yeah, that's cool. All right. So if you look at the original church, Acts 2, you see that there were multiple house churches all around Jerusalem and all throughout the, the holy areas, and they, each house church had a pastor. They had pastors, or they shared pastors, and they all met together, and they had these characteristics. What were they? They were of one mind, right? They were devoted to prayer and the apostles' teaching, and they all had something in common, right? They didn't, they didn't hold on to their possessions, right? They gave everything they had so that no one had need. They were super generous, devoted to prayer and to the apostles' teachings, and they lived together in community, right? And then the church began to, to grow, and the church began to grow and to grow and to grow. I do really preach a lot with my hands, don't I? I do a lot of talking with my hands. Okay, so the church began to grow. Just realized that today. Um, and as the church grew, it began to gain power. And on down through history, the church started spreading all over the known world and into Rome. And then this emperor named Constantine came along, right? And before Constantine, Christianity was a dangerous religion. It was risky. If you're a Christian, you could have been thrown to the lions. You could have been crucified on the side of the street, stoned to death. Lots of different options. But when Constantine came along, Constantine saw an opportunity to make Christianity the state religion. Right? So he made the state religion. And then, guess what happened? People at the top got what? Power. 
And they got influence. And then from that influence, it didn't just stay inside the church. It became political positions because now the church is a state-sponsored church. Right? So they took the state understanding of, of how, to, how to run government and how to run life. They had senators and representatives and those positions of power and, and authority. And they transferred a, that learned behavior into the church. And then we started getting new titles. Popes, archbishops, deacons, pastors, elders. We started getting new titles. And with those titles came authority. With that authority came power. With that power came influence. And we all know that power does what? It corrupts, right? It corrupts. And it did. And we see that through all the church history, right? Now, the, the Word of God stopped being shared in the house, and it got moved to these buildings, these cathedrals. And then there were these people on top. And so the people stopped having access to the Word of God. A lot of them were illiterate. A lot of them didn't know what the Word said. But their pastors would tell them what the Word said and how they should pay for their repentance. And they should do certain things in order to, to be right with God. And they began to oppress the people. And then they began to grow in power and grow in influence and grow in power. And we, we took this, this Catholic model through the Reformation, right? So Martin Luther, Zwingler, Calvin, all these reformers came in and they're like, no, 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 this is not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches that it, it's a to the church looks totally different in Acts 2 than it does today. We've got to get back to this. We've got to get back to the Word. Scripture only, right? Solo Scriptura, only Scripture. And we've got to get back to God, Christ is the head of the church, not popes and archbishops. And, and so he nailed his 95 thesis on the wall. And I, I don't know if he did that in like a drunken moment of stupidity, but he like was like, let's just talk about it. And then it, from that, it was just like, woo, Reformation, right? We got back to the Scripture. But what did we bring with us? Pastors at the top, bishops, deacons, leadership structure, we learned it from Roman government, we brought it into the church, and then we brought it with us, and we brought it to today. And when prominent pastors fall, what happens to the sheep in God's community, in God's church? They scatter, or they stop going to church, they stop being in the community. That's a horrible ratio. That's a horrible design. That is not the intent of Scripture, and that is not where we're supposed to be as the church of Christ today. Because if it's all based on one person, one leadership structure, and that person falls, it's not just the church that suffers, it's the witness of Christ in the community that suffers. So how do we get back to Acts 2? How do we, how do we flip this on its head? How does the gospel remix the ratio of minister to ministerees? Is that even a word? I just made it up. All right. But, um, like, how does the gospel flip us and remix our life and our understanding of the church? We've got to go back to before the church, to when Jesus was around. And he had his 12 disciples, and he gave them a new commandment. If you'll flip to your Bibles, John 13, 34, and 35. you find that real quick. John 13, 34, and 35. I'll give you a second. <clears throat> this is towards the end of Jesus' life. He's having the last supper with his disciples. He had just taken off his robe and washed their feet, and Peter challenged him. And said, no, you'll never wash my feet. And he goes, no, I've got to wash you all or you're in trouble. You know, it's like, and there was this moment of humility and love and service. And then he sits with his disciples and he's about to have this last supper. And he says, I give you a new commandment. 1335, let me make sure I quote it properly. I had it written down. That's horrible. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Why is that a new commandment? Right? I mean, we, we've been told to love one another beforehand. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as well. In these two, all the prophets and all the, the Scripture are held on these two commandments. They're the greatest commandments. Love your neighbor, love God. We already knew to love one another. Why is it new? What made this a new commandment? It's the second part of the first sentence. As I have loved you. So now the standard is not love your neighbor as yourself. Now the standard is love as Christ has loved you. Which totally mixes it up. It remixes it. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> now, the Gospels and the, and the New Testament spend the rest of, pretty much the rest of how to do this new commandment. How do you love one another as Christ has loved you? They, they teach us. And they teach us in the things called the one another verses. Right? And depending on your translation, there's between 50 and 58 one another verses. All the way from greet one another with a kiss. Anybody do that this morning? Very disappointed. No, I'm just kidding. Um, greet one another with a kiss all the way to wash one another's feet. It's all the way. There, this is how do you love one another as Christ has loved you is explained in these 51 one another verses. And those 58 one another verses can be summed up in four categories. All right, and today that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about these four categories. How do we get back to love one another as Christ has loved us and then remix our understanding of the church? How, does the, how is the gospel, our status in Christ, going to remix our understanding of how we're supposed to live in the church? Here's category number one, love selflessly. Category number two, pursue unity. Number three, practice humility. And number four, teach and admonish one another. So all 58 verses can be summed up into these four categories, right? So let's do love selflessly. 13 times in the New Testament, <coughs> the text literally says, love one another. Right? I mean, that's pretty much what it says. Hey, love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. If you, haven't, if you didn't get the first four times, love one another. 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 13 times. And then those one another texts, those love one another texts are then expounded in four other texts that tell us exactly how to love one another. And they're summed up like this. To love one another means to serve, to tolerate, to be devoted to, bear one another's burdens, and to care for one another. To love one another means to have an attitude of others above self, a willingness to be offended, or to suffer with someone. And that love must be accompanied, accompanied, accompanied with action. It's, it's, not, it's not just something we say or we feel. It's a verb. It's an action. To love one another is, accompan is accompanied with life. So what does it look like? What does it look like to love one another as Christ has called us to love? Let's, look at, let's think about it like this. You're in a small group, a missional community. You're at your house, and a neighbor comes by, checks you out. And that neighbor may be from New York or New Jersey. And that neighbor may or may not be a little boisterous. And maybe a little crude. And maybe they don't have the southern filters that most of us enjoy, right? Where we say, oh, bless your heart. No, they just say, oh, you ugly. You know what I mean? Like, they just let it go, a little crude. And, and that, when that person walks in the house, they're there to get to know you, right? They want to engage in this community. But... They're a little offensive. 
they kind of push your buttons. To love them like Christ called us to love one another is to take the risk of being offended. To take the risk that you might be hurt a little bit and to move towards them in an intentional fashion. To go up to them and say, Hey, Rico, I don't, I don't even know. Why is that my northern name? I don't have... Uh, hey, Steve. I mean, I was trying to think of like a mafia name and Rico is the best I could come up with. Sorry. Um, hey, Godfather. How you doing? Um, you move towards them and say, what's your story? Tell me about who you are. Tell me about what you're going through. And don't just tell me you're doing fine and you just moved to North Carolina and everything's great. No, tell me who you are. Tell me what's going on in your life. How are you suffering? How are you struggling? And then, now that I know this stuff, how can I walk with you and bear your burdens? How can I take the risk of being offended by your messed up life and walk with you as Christ walked with us? Because as you get to know people and love them, you might realize their life is a hot mess. Right? A really messed up hot mess. And it's going to take some effort and some time and some patience, (coughs) some willingness to be offended, some being devoted to, and some a lot of tolerating, right? All those love one another texts, those 13 texts are summed up with that. Tolerate, serve, move to intentionally, suffer, and bear one another's burdens. That's love one another selflessly. Remember DC talk? Love is a verb. Requires us to move. Not just something we can say. Do I have a DC talk fans in here? Yeah? Just three of us? All right. It's the reason DC Talk's not around anymore. <laughs> All three of us bought their albums, and it was over. All right. Second, pursue unity. There are 15 one another texts that speak to the importance of unity in our love for one another. They're summed up like this. Don't bite, devour, or consume one another. Don't grumble against each other. Be at peace with one another. Be patient, kind-hearted, of one mind, bearing with and Oh, whoa, big word. Forgiving one another. Seek good for one another. Accepting others as God has accepted us. Woo! And not repaying evil for evil. Remember last week? Stop, but don't stop there. Right? I mean, move from evil to a blessing. One of the greatest enemies <coughs> of the witness of the church in a community is, is division. That's the greatest enemy, Right? Is, is he wants to destroy our unity. Because when we're unified and we're moving together for the glory of God, when, when Christ is the head of the church and we're moving into our city, it's hard to stop us. But when we have factions, you know, like, well, I, I listen to Paul and I listen to Apollo and I listen to Jesus and I listen to Steve and I like this pastor. We have all these factions among us and we elevate men to the position of head of the church instead of Christ. And we get gossip. We get slander. We get biting and devouring, consuming. We get, well, he offended me, so just let me go and tell you. I'm like, I don't really want to gossip, but let me tell you everything he did. Right? And then that, that starts that, that, that seed of division. And then that seed of division grows. And then churches decide, all right, you're either with me or you're with them. Let's go. Churches split. Churches die. People leave. Some people sit back and say, I don't want to be involved in all all that messy life, so I'm just going to go somewhere else. And the witness of Christ is hindered in the community. Fifteen times the Scripture teaches us 
<coughs> to love one another while seeking unity. Unity, unity. unity doesn't magically happen. It's not something that just because you're in the church, you'll be unified. It's something we have to fight for. It's something we have to intentionally pursue. And if we really want to love one another like Christ loved us, we have to pursue unity. We've got to fight for it. Anytime you bring a large group of sinners into the same room, they're going to do what? They're going to sin against each other. Right? We're good at it. Right? Even though we've been redeemed and we've been called something totally different, we still fight our flesh. And you put us in the same room, somebody's going to say something offensive. Somebody's going to say something that they don't agree with. Somebody's going to do a little backstab. Somebody, it's always going to happen. But the body of Christ, in order to c- complete the commandment, has got to pursue unity. Don't devour. Don't bite. Don't grumble. Be patient, kind-hearted, of one mind, bearing and forgiving one another as you have been forgiven. That's a tall ticket. Forgiving as you have been forgiven. How do we get there? How do we pursue unity? We have to do number three. Practice humility. Do number three. Practice humility. There are eight common texts that tell us to practice humility as a means of loving like Jesus. John 13, 14. Um, just before he gave the new commandment, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and then he told them to wash one another's feet. There was no greater example of humility than to give one's life for another, right? Or to, to become one's servant. And, and Jesus, the rabbi, the one they were all like looking at, the one that they were looking at, and their leader, and they had put their hopes in, he gets on his knees and he takes off his robe and he puts it on his lap and he pulls out a basin and, some, and he did what slaves usually did in Hebrew culture. He got down on his knees and he washed their feet. And, you know, and like I said, Peter was so offended by this. He's like, no, Master, Jesus, Rabbi, you can't wash my feet. You're higher than that. You're on my pedestal up here. And Jesus said, you know what? Unless you let me wash your feet and wash all of you, you'll have no part of me. You've got to humble yourself. Eight verses are summed up like this. Give preference to one another. Give preference to one another. Serve one another. Don't be haughty or boastful to one another, but be subject to one another. Humility is not devaluing yourself. Humility does not mean... That you come into a room, you think, "Oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not good enough," or, you know, all these people are so much better and so much more amazing. And wow, you're a better teacher, and and you're you're a better servant, and <clears throat> you're better at greeting people. And yeah, I just I'm just gonna you know quietly sit back and it's not devaluing yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. Putting others before you. It's being confident in the giftings you've been giving. It's, it's being confident in, in, the, in the spiritual resources you have to understand Scripture, to speak the truth, to encourage one another, to admonish one another when necessary. It, it's, it's being confident, but not being in front. It's putting others, giving preference to one another before yourself. So think about this. If... if if there's an opportunity for gossip or division and you're the one being offended, 
To pursue unity, you've got to practice humility. You've got to humble yourself, and you've got to go to the people who are talking junk about you or starting the gossip or whatever, and you've got to go and you've got to serve them. You don't stop and seek justice or start more and start the factions. You don't stop. You, you keep going and you bless them. Just what we learned last week. The gospel remixes everything. And so if we want to love one another like Christ calls us to love one another. We've got to love selflessly, pursue unity, and practice humility. And if we do that, if we're a unified group of humble people loving one another, then we get to the point where we can teach and admonish. Right? Then, then this is how we sum up the, the rest of the love one another. We teach and admonish one another. What does that mean? How does, how does this sum up? Well, there's seven one another verses in the New Testament that describe how we are to teach and mature one another up in Christ. They say, speak the truth to one another. This is a good one. Comfort one another concerning the resurrection. Comfort one another concerning the resurrection. Have you ever known a believer that begins to doubt whether Jesus was even real? Whether he really did die? Whether he did really rise from the dead? And they struggle with that? One of the one another's, one of the teaching and admonishing one another's in which we love one another, Christ loves us, is we comfort one another concerning the resurrection. We remind one another of the truth. (coughs) Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Encourage, build up, teach. And when necessary, admonish one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Jesus gave us the example. He spent three years teaching and investing and maturing his disciples before he, he left them. Right? He spent his, his time teaching them about the kingdom of God, who he was, who they were, what authority they were going to have in this world. And then he sent them off as disciples to make more disciples. That, that's the design of the church. Right? Multiplying yourself making disciples that go out into the world and make more disciples, that make more disciples, not for your church, not for you, but for Jesus. This can't be the sole job of a CEO of the local church or their staff team. It's got to be the job of the body of Christ. It's the role of the people of God. We each have wisdom to share. We each have experiences to draw from. We each possess the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And you, if you are in Christ, you now have the mind of Christ. That's what the Scripture tells us. So there's no one that say, well, I I can't teach. I'm not not a good teacher. No, you can. You can can remind me that, that, that Christ loves me. You can remind me and comfort me concerning the resurrection. You can stimulate me to good deeds. You, you can do all those things. It doesn't matter where you're at, whether you're a teenager or you're 95 years old. You are gifted with the Spirit. You have the mind of Christ and you have the access to the Word of God. Teach and admonish one another. We each have a role to play. And we need to do it well. Let me tell you how this looks practically. We have in this church right now a group of married couples that meet. They get together. <coughs> and when they got together, the people who, who kind of put it together said, well, no, we don't, we don't, we're not trying to, to teach or to, to mentor. We just want to get together mutually and encourage one another. I'm like, well, that's a cool heart. I love that. But they're going to teach. Because right? they've been walking with, with, with God for a long time. They've been walking with one another. They're going to teach. And they're going to they're gonna put up warning signs for other couples. 
And young couples are going to teach their experience to the older couples. That's going to encourage them with their kids or in their marriage. And all this teaching and admonishing is going to happen in the context of a relationship where people are vulnerable, they look to the Word of God, they share their experiences with the Holy Spirit, and they love one another. And I know that's happening because I've heard the testimonies of it. If you've listened really well during our discussions after the sermons, you've heard the testimonies of that group where there's teaching and admonishing going on. And you know what the best part of the entire thing is? I'm not involved in it. And neither is Lance. Your teaching pastors are not there teaching and admonishing the, the, the body of Christ. They're doing it for one another. They're living out this text. And they're encouraging marriages. They're strengthening relationships. They're working through their difficulties just because they're intentional about being in a relationship where they love one another by teaching and admonishing. It happens. It's real. It's what depth groups are for. It's what mission communities are for. We do teaching and admonishing here on Sunday mornings, but this is not the most important time you should be taught and admonished. Right? It should be in the context of your relationships. The people you know, sitting at coffee at Starbucks, hanging out at dinner with a couple families. That's where discipleship is happening. It's where God is being glorified and we're loving one another as Christ loved us. So what do we do with all this? <coughs> you remember I said that too much of, of something is a bad thing. National statistics say that the average church has one paid staff member, one pastor for 150 people. That's the national statistics. Right? You look it up. One staff, one paid staff for 150, per 150 people. So that means that there is one pastor who, according to the CEO model that we have adopted, we might be a little more Catholic than we think we are, but the CEO we adopted from the Catholic Church that was brought through the Reformation and is commonly seen in churches today, that you might have given into, you, you might believe it right now, and, that, and that's okay, that's fine. I believed it for a long time. Um, that one person that's responsible for the spiritual growth, doing all the hospital visitations, doing all the teaching and admonishing, planning the discipleship, planning all the mission work. Like if, if, we, if we take that CEO mentality that the pastor is at the top and the most important person in the room, and we put all that weight on him, what's going to happen? He's going to fall. He's going to fall hard. He's going to get prideful. Might get stuck in some kind of a sin pattern. And, and, and he'll justify it. right? He'll get, like, it's my only release. I, I, I know I gamble, but it's the only way I can just get a break because I'm just constantly bearing the weight of this whole church. Like, or I know I do this or that or whatever, but it's just like I just need a break from just all this pressure. If I, if I listed five names of pastors right now that have fallen in the last two years, you would know them. Big names in this, in this, in this world, in this, in this country. And each one of them said they were lonely. They got elevated to a, to a pulpit and stood up high and praised and worshipped, and they got lonely, and they fell in sin. They got prideful. They mismanaged money. They cheated on their wives. They didn't Sabbath well. And they, and they wore themselves out. And then their, their family suffered. You name it. They, they, you could just name the reasons. They got addicted to some substance. And in that loneliness, because the ratio was 1 to 150, they fell. And the church's witness was harmed. But the gospel remixes the ratio. The gospel calls us a priesthood of believers. 
The, co- the gospel says that there's not this one special being in each church that we're supposed to, to look up to. It says, the gospel now says the ratio is one to one. Or even better, it's 150 to one. It flips it. Right? The gospel says you are endowed with the Holy Spirit. You have the ability to teach one another. You are the ministers. And it, are pastors important? Absolutely. God has given us pastors, teachers, evangelists, elders. He's gave them for the purposes of equipping the saints to do the work of ministry and guarding the doctrine of the church. There are two primary roles. Equip the saints and guard the doctrine. There, it's, important, it's an important position, but it's not the most important position. It's not the head of the church. There's only one head, and his name is... Jesus. Can we say it a little louder and a little more authority? There's only one head and his name is? Jesus. Thank you. That's it. Jesus. So when we elevate men to high positions, equal with Jesus, even though we're not saying it, we're thinking it. Oh, that's, don't we pay him to do that? Don't, don't we pay them, that staff team, to do that thing? I, I'm, I'm really busy. I don't, I don't really have time to do that hospital visitation thing and go visit that person in my small group. Don't we pay a pastor to do that stuff? We may not say it, but we think it. And the ratio is messed up. But the gospel remixes it. The gospel gives us a hope that we can intentionally engage one another and make disciples. That a teenager can make a disciple out of a 30-year-old. Do you believe that? that? That's what the scripture teaches. A teenager that has followed Christ and given his life is endowed with the same spirit of God as the pastor is. They can witness just as well. They can love just as well. They can serve. They can bear burdens. I mean, to a point. I mean, like, they might not have a car yet. But I mean, they can, like, bear certain burdens, right? They can carry one another. They can be patient with one another. They can speak up among the other teenagers that are starting the gossip mill and, and bring unity and be that voice, that peacemaker. Each person in this room that as a follower of Jesus Christ is endowed with the Holy Spirit and you are the most important ministers here. Because you are going to engage parts of the city I will never see. You're going to engage people I will never know. Lance will never know. You work with people that I don't even have the intelligence to get an interview with. Right? I mean, let's be honest. Speaking of those students that go to Duke and work in hospitals. Okay? Like, <laughs> just great. <clears throat> I, I, won't, I won't gain the access to their lives that you'll gain. So God has given you the spirit and called you a minister of the gospel and flipped the ratio of who's supposed to be at the top. Jesus is at the top and we serve him together. You know what your pastor should be? We should be your servants. We should be washing your feet, equipping you, giving you the stuff you need. But we're not your Jesus. And the gospel remixes that. How do we do that intentionally here at Restoration? How, why, to say it is one thing, to say we believe it is one thing, but then to act on it is a different thing. So the way that we design this church, if you're, if you're new, if you're visiting, if you want to know this church, this is how we believe it. We don't have one pastor. We have four elders. We have four men that have been called out that meet the qualification of elder in the church, and that, that number can increase as we grow, but there are four men right now, and those four men move in unity. There's not a supermajority vote in how we live our lives or how we run this church. There's not one voice. I, don't, I'm, I might be the, okay, I, I am the vision casting elder and I'm the fall guy. 
right? Everybody needs a fall guy. So if something goes bad, it's on my shoulders. I took that from the guys because I love them. But they, we do this stuff in unity, right? If it's like, hey, we're going to move buildings? I don't really know. Okay, well, we need to sit on it and pray about it. It's not, well, I think we should move buildings so y'all get on board with me, right? We, we do this in unity. There are four guys that move in unity. So we already took the pedestal away, and then we have multiple teaching pastors, right? So Lance and I are primarily the teaching pastors, and the other people will teach. <coughs> we did that so that we avoid the elevation of one person. Because we looked around in the community, and we saw pastors that we admired and we loved, and we put a lot of stake in, and we watched them fall. And then we watched what happened to their churches, and we thought, we can't do that again. And then, not only do we believe in the multiple teaching model, we believe in that so much that you have the Holy Spirit, and you are able to discern the Word of God and encourage one another, that at the end of each message, we give you microphones. We give you microphones in the floor to teach and admonish one another. To use your experience with God, your understanding of the text, and to argue it out together, and to chew on the word together. That's risky. That's risky. And if if our job as elders is to guard the doctrine of church, that's when all of our antennas are like, you know, like we're listening. Do we need to correct something? Is this good? Do we have to say something? But you know what? The Holy Spirit has been moving in awesome ways. We'll, We'll preach a message and then we'll have a discussion, and people will walk away with a life change, not because of the message, because of the discussion. Because somebody brought up something that was just like, wow. Because we believe the Holy Spirit is in you. You have access to the Word of God, you can understand the Word of God, and you can teach us. So, then we set up our discipleship plan. And the discipleship plan wasn't come, and we'll write a, doc- we'll write a bunch of documents, and you fill in the blanks, and and you'll grow in your knowledge, and life is great. No, we put you in the driver's seat of your depth groups. And we ask you to go find books and evaluate them against the Scripture. We ask you to teach the Scripture to one another. We ask you to pray for one another. We ask you to suffer with one another. We got you in depth groups because we believe so much in the flipping of the the ratio that you are the ministers of the gospel that we design our entire discipleship strategy on your ability to teach and admonish and love one another. And then we said, okay, we're all loving one another. We're teaching one another. Now we've got to go on mission. Well, the church isn't going to tell you where to go. The the pastors aren't going to tell you where to go. God has given you passions and you interest and you burdens for people in the city. So you find 10 or 12 other people that you have the same burden with and you go together and we'll support you. What funds do you need? What materials do you need? What space do you need? We'll, we'll support you, but you go on mission in the city and go do what God has burdened your heart with. Don't wait for us to tell you we're going on a mission trip to this community and we're going to go do this. Everybody sign up here, please. And this is, you, I don't have a burden for those people. Yeah, well, that's the only thing we're doing, so sign up. You know, no, we, we trust that the Holy Spirit has given you special burdens for people in this city, and he's sending us out there, and that's where we're supposed to be, and then we want you to go together in a team. And we don't micromanage it, Right? I mean, yes, there's a pastor currently in each one of the, the, the missional communities, but we're not, we're not running it as dictators and telling you what to do, right? I mean, we're just, okay, we, we discuss as a group, this is where we want to go, let's go. We want to go with you. Teach us, admonish us, educate us. There are people, we're, we're serving a group called Real Durham right now in, in my missional community, and there are 
people in our missional community that know more about serving people living in poverty or people who have experienced the, the consequences of racial inequity more than I do, and I'm learning from them. That's, this is what we believe. The gospel can remix the ratio of ministers from 1 to 150 to 150 to 1. When you're sick, your missional community can be at the hospital with you. I, I want to be there. Call me. I'll come visit you. But I shouldn't be the one you get concerned about. You should be concerned whether your depth group shows up. Right? Because we've called them to love one to, to be the people who love you and serve you and minister to you and walk with you. Your missional community should come and, and serve you and, and do the meal trains and all that kind of stuff. Not the staff. We'll do it. We love you. But we want to flip the ratio. 10 to 1. 50 to 1. 150 to 1. Not 1 to 150. All right, so how do you take this on? How do you, how, how do you absorb this? It's real quick. I want you to do an internal evaluation, and I want you to do an external evaluation. Okay? Internal evaluation. I want you to ask yourself, have you embraced your role as a minister of the gospel? Do you have confidence in your calling by God to be a child of God and a missionary in the city? Have you embraced that role? And I want you to ask, do you keep your eyes and your ears and your hearts open for those around you? And then do you move towards them in the love of Christ? Are you involved in a missional community? Are you in a depth group? Are you going on mission with a team in the city? Are you willing to invite a stranger that might offend you into the, into the, the family of God? Are your ears and your eyes open to others? Are you loving as Christ has called us to love? Sorry, that's the external evaluation. <laughs> Internal evaluation. This is what I want you to ask yourself. Do I demonstrate selflessness in my love for people around me in this room? Do I put them above me? Ask that question. Are the people around me more important than myself in this room? Are they more important than me at my workplace or in my classrooms or in my home? Am I self-focused or am I other-focused? Another internal. Am I a vessel of unity or disunity? Do you, do you pursue unity in order to love one another as Christ has loved you? Or do you find yourself to be one who wants to stand on something so firm that you're okay with division happening? Sometimes we stand. Sometimes we need to be voices of unity. Am I a peacemaker or a gossiper? And then ask this. When asked... Would the people closest to me say that my love for others is characterized by humility or by self? Do I think of others more than I think of myself? Am I teaching and admonishing other believers or am I, am I being taught and admonished by other believers? Disciple making is a team sport. We all need a Paul, someone teaching us, and we all need a Timothy, somebody we're teaching. Right? So every one of you have the ability to do it. Are you doing it? Are you teaching and admonishing other believers? So that's the internal, the external, or am I inviting people to death groups? Am I being involved in missions? Am I, am I have my eyes and ears open to care for the people around me? The gospel of Jesus Christ, our status before the Father because of the work of Christ, can remix our understanding of our status in the church. We're not just parishioners. We're ministers. We're not attendees. 
We're missionaries. We're gifted. We're empowered by the Spirit. Let's flip the ratio. Let's pray.